Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. This is the first of a number of bonus podcast episodes that will be coming your way over the next few weeks, Epiphany, and I hope that these podcasts find you well and in uh, good health and in uh, a good day as you are traveling to and from work or wherever you listen to these podcasts. And so uh, the reasoning behind this uh, bonus podcast is, you know, a few a few weeks ago, I preached on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and our own Dennis Sweeney prefaced the reading with this story from Genesis uh, with a joke. And it's a joke that I had shared with him earlier that morning. He said this, let nobody say Pastor Brian shies away from the hard passages. And of course, we know that in Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are a lot of hard things that happen. And uh, it's the story where we talked about the attempted sexual assault and the assorted acts of those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah when they approached the angelic emissaries, this, the avatar of the presence of God. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction is what starts this chapter in Genesis 19, but really it starts a long time before that. It starts when we are meant to compare and contrast Abraham's righteous hospitality to Lot's righteous hospitality to the atrocious and wicked behavior of Sodom. So really, even though the story of Sodom and Gomorrah starts in Genesis 19, it starts before that. Uh, But then when does the story of Sodom and Gomorrah end? When do we move on from that part of scripture? And on that Sunday, when we read the reading from Genesis 19, we ended our reading at verse uh, 29. So it's Genesis 19, 29. And this is what uh, that ending was. The ending was verse 29. and, And this is what we read. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out into the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. But here's the trick, though. Uh, The story in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction does not end at verse 29. There's a coda to that chapter. There's more to the story. And it's a part of the story that's often overlooked because it's a number of of another of a number of difficult passages within a difficult passage. And so what happens to Lot and his family after they were rescued from Sodom by God? And there's a few more verses at the end of this chapter, which uh, we didn't preach on for a number of reasons, chief among them being, oh my gosh, you'll see in a second here. Um, But it's a story that's just as sordid as the sexual assault that started the chapter. And, and by our own modern standards, we would even say it's a story of, of a secondary story of sexual assault. And so when we make the joke that Pastor Brian doesn't shy away from hard passages, then I really thought I would share a few thoughts on this final bit of Genesis 19 that we had previously skipped over. 
So I'm going to read to you what happens to Lot, and I'm going to read to you what happens to him after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. And so here is the reading from Genesis 19. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. And man, isn't that just a weird passage to read and end it with, this is the word of the Lord. Um, The reality is that things are not looking good for this family who has just escaped a regional apocalypse. Lot has lost his wife. Um, He has lost um, two intended husbands for his daughters, two fiancés, two intended marriages. Uh, They've lost their business. They've lost their livestock. They've lost their wealth. They've lost their social standing. And they've escaped with their lives, but they haven't escaped with much else. And you'll recall that Lot and his two daughters and his wife were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and God said to the family, God said, listen, flee to the hills, go there. But then the family, uh, then Lot says, look, can you at least just spare this little town called Zoar? There's not a whole lot happening in Zoar. We could just flee there. We don't want to flee to the mountains. We're city folk. And so God says, okay, that's fine. Um, you can go to this little town of Zoar and I will not destroy it. That's how things were at the beginning of this chapter, but what we find at the end of the chapter is that the three survivors of the destruction of the city, they went to Zoar, but they're not really living there. They are living in a secluded cave in the mountains nearby. Um, That Lot, at this point, seeing God destroy this absolute wicked city of Sodom, he is isolated, he is traumatized, and he is essentially penniless. Lot is afraid of any further human contact. Perhaps he's afraid that if he goes to Zoar, he's going to find that they're just as bad as Sodom and that he's going to get caught up again in a second apocalypse. And not only is Lot overcome and traumatized by the despair of uh, following his, uh, his rescue, but his daughters seem to be equally full of despair themselves. Right? They're the daughters of a penniless, cave-dwelling, crazy man. They are the daughters of the town crazy. How in the world were there be an arranged marriage for them when everything that they had in Sodom, their money, reputation, and social standing, has been lost? 
And so the elder of Lot's two daughters comes up with a plan. Here's what she says. Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. If that's a little gross to you, well, good. Um, incest is forbidden in the law of Israel. And ancient readers of this text, they're going to respond the same way. They're going to gag a little too when they read of this plan. Um, but sure enough, the two daughters get their father drunk and they lay with him and they become pregnant. What they have, One of them has a son named Moab and the other has a son named Ben-Ami. And the text tells us that these two sons would grow and eventually father the nations that uh, are later on in scripture called the Moabites and the Ammonites. And these are two ancient nations that Israel will be in contact and in conflict with for generations to come. You, I think all listening to this, know the old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. And I think what we see in our reading and the thing to take away from our reading is that when, when your village is the village in the nation of Sodom, known throughout the annals of history for trying to sexually assault a pair of God's angelic avatars, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised that these daughters would take advantage of their own father in this way. And consider also their mother, whose pillar of salt death was tragic, right? It was rooted in her refusal to leave the way of life of Sodom behind. And so we have Lot, this character in Genesis, this person from Genesis, he really is a righteous man, but he's also imperfect. He is a biblical figure whose love for God was clear in how he presented his hospitality to these angelic avatars. But when he chose to settle in and around the region of Sodom, but when he made the decision to move to a wicked region, um, that wickedness seems to have crept into and taken over his family. That the, the culture of, of wickedness in this town, uh, in this town infected and, 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 and got under the skin and began to influence the hearts and minds of, the, of his family, of the people he loved the most. I, I wonder if you've noticed how important a community can be in a person's heart and mind. Uh, maybe you know someone who changed dramatically when they started dating another person. Or maybe they changed dramatically after they got married or they had kids. Maybe they started a new job and all of a sudden they have new and different clothes and the manner of their speaking changes. You know, I moved to Ligonier about two years ago and even though I'm from the South, um, my use of the word yins now outnumbers my use of the word all. And I'm not really even trying to be ironic. It just happened one day. Why do you think campaign signs are so effective? Um, one of the things that a campaign sign does is it says, look, our community is voting for this candidate. And so to vote for this candidate is to be a part of our community. And so the importance of a community coming together around an idea, uh, the importance of the, the, the ways in which the community values enter into our lives we don't want to look at that with um, and, and treat it as if it's a light thing. It really isn't. It's quite significant. In fact, in the world of psychology, there's a pattern of behavior 
that academics have started to call the bystander effect. And so in the event of a public emergency or a situation, the fewer bystanders that are there to witness the event, the more likely it is that one of those bystanders will jump in to be a helpful and good Samaritan figure. Um, they, the example they give was um, people falling onto the tracks of New York subways. So you know if you've been to New York that you have the subway platform which is raised and the tracks which are below. And if one person falls on a subway track below and they're in danger because a train is coming, if there are a few people around, the odds are pretty good that one of them will crouch down and offer the person a hand back up onto the platform. It's a pretty good chance that would be the case. But if there are maybe 80 or 90 people in rush hour waiting for the train and someone falls on the tracks, there's this unspoken uh, dynamic at play where people are looking to one another for context clues about what they should do. And so if nobody steps forward and there are 80 or 90 people, people are thinking, I should just do what the group does. And so the odds that someone will crouch down and offer the person a hand up are actually a lot lower. Even though the more people are there, if there are 80, 90 people there, make the task a lot easier. And so this idea that the crowds around us and the people around us are going to impact what we believe and how we behave, you know, um, they taught us all about that as 90 kids, I'll tell you what. Uh, you couldn't get through an assembly in a 90s kids elementary school setting without a lecture about peer pressure and the dangers of peer pressure. And that's, that's true. Peer pressure is a serious matter for sure. It's why missionaries have such a hard time living overseas. They're isolated in a foreign culture, away from what is familiar, and the peer pressure of acting like the foreign culture is weighing on them. And that's why you're secretly keeping tabs on who your kids hang out with. You're putting barriers between your kids and the kids they're likely to get in trouble with. That's why business gurus and corporate consultants consistently remind leaders that culture eats talent for breakfast, that the community your company builds is more important than the talent you bring on board. But, and this is where I think the, 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 the gospel enters into our reading today, the reverse of negative peer pressure is true too. There is something, there is such a thing as positive peer pressure. This is part of the reason why I think that God the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us all as Christians. The more time we spend with God, whether we're doing it in our own personal times of prayer, whether we're doing it in the context of our church community or fellowship, whether we're doing it through our good works that we do for our neighbors, the more time we spend with God, the more we are exposed to the positive peer pressure that is blessed by the heavenly realms. The Christian life is an overflow of our relationship with God from the socializing and norming uh, done that comes from having the Holy Spirit guide and inhabit our hearts and our community. Paul says, uh, in, while he's preaching in Acts chapter 17, that we were made to be in relationship with God to seek him out and reach out to him and find him, that we are to be in community with him. And unlike the wickedness of Sodom, which permeated the hearts and minds of its citizens, we have the holiness of God in our own midst. 
and it's permeating our hearts and our minds and our community. And the more time we spend with God, the less attractive and the less enticing the ways of Sodom will be to us. And so the takeaway from something like this today is this. What we read uh, in this terrible, uh, disgusting circumstance with Lot and his daughters, it's the byproduct of what it looks like when we spend time with people who don't have God's um, heart and mind and soul um, in their own heart and mind and soul. Um, That it's a negative example of the dangers of what happens when we spend one hour a week in church and we spend the other six days a week doing things that aren't um, in, that aren't in accordance with what God would have in store. My one hour a week with you as the pastor on Sunday mornings is not going to be enough to counteract every single other voice in your life telling you to do things. And some of those voices are telling you to do things that aren't of God. And so when we find ourselves constantly surrounded by hearts and voices and souls in opposition to God's rule and righteousness in our world, we shouldn't be super surprised when our hearts and minds and souls begin to mimic that of our ungodly peers. But um, the redemptive story of God is still at work in our reading today, um, despite the, this, incid- this incident of incest. Um, that This is what God does, is he takes these, these negative things and he turns them around. Um, because you see, one of Lot's great-great-grandchildren, generations from now, um, will be a young woman named Ruth. And Ruth, you will learn, if you read anything about her in the book of Ruth, because this woman gets a whole book of the Bible named after her, um, she is going to be a descendant of Lot, a descendant of Moab, a descendant of this incestuous relationship. And Ruth, you see, will become King David's great grandmother. And by proxy, Ruth will get a shout out in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Ruth, the Moabite, the product of this very d- disturbing event, um, she finds um, uh, God uses this event and God uses part of the result of this event to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ into this world. Ruth is one of the women in Jesus's genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. And so the salvation of Lot and these two daughters from Sodom, despite the ickiness and the wickedness of this passage, um, they're a part of the work that God does to bring about Jesus Christ into this world. And in Jesus Christ, we are all welcome into a relationship with God. And we are all welcomed to have our wickedness washed away as we move out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, as we move out of our old communities into a community in which Christ is the head. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.